Hail and well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. So, obviously, you've already seen the title of the episode, so you know that I'm talking about the history of road trips. Strangely enough, compared to some things that you would expect to have more documentation on, this is actually something that's pretty well documented. In particular, the very first road trip is very well documented. Now, to be clear, the reason I decided to cover this topic is actually that it was suggested by one of my fellow Nerdsmith creators, Chad from Chaotic Goodness, because of a very long road trip that myself and two of the other directors just undertook. So I've mentioned before that I live in in California, and specifically I'm in the Sacramento area of California. For anyone who's not familiar with California geography, that puts me in Northern California, sort of Northern Central California. Sorry about my cat in the background. He's super excited that I'm home because I was gone for the weekend, so now he has to yell at me about it. But anyway, Chad suggested it, and I appreciate the suggestion because it's actually a really good idea, because myself, Tessa, and Logan, who are two of the other Nerdsmith directors, the three of us all live in the greater Sacramento area, and we took a long road trip this weekend up to Rose City Comic Con. Now, I talked about the history of conventions in my last episode, and we had a blast at Rose City. Everything went great. It was a lot of fun. We had our panel on diversity and inclusivity that went really well, and I'm glad to be back home, of course, but it was definitely a lot of fun. Now, luckily, Logan, Tessa, and I are all very good friends. Tessa and Logan are actually married, and we've been friends for years because we took a very long road trip together. We were in the car together on Thursday for approximately 17 hours. So, like I said, it's a good thing we like each other. Um, But the reason is because there was a fire on I-5. So going from the Sacramento area up to Portland, we had to go around and there were a bunch of detours for um, an accident also. So it was a time. But, you know, I've said it a couple times already and we said it a lot that day, but we were so happy it was with each other because we all get along so well that even though it was an incredibly long day, we still had fun. And of course, whenever we had reception, we were in touch with our other Nerdsmith creators, which was when Chad gave me this idea. Now, I mentioned that the very first big U.S. road trip is actually well documented. There's a couple reasons for this. One is because of the fact that it was so early on in the history of automobiles that it was a really big deal that someone went cross-country in a car. The other, I would suspect, has to do with what the impetus for the trip was. Because the reason that the very first road trip happened was a bet. Now, to be clear, this is the very first cross-country road trip. I'm sure there were other smaller road trips here and there. But the very first cross-country from the West Coast to the East Coast U.S. trip was based on a bet. Back in 1903, in sort of the middle of May, Horatio Nelson Jackson was at a bar in San Francisco. 
This was a bar for men of means. They had money. They were talking and discussing different things, you know, everything probably ranging from politics all the way to did you bet on the most recent horse or whatever it was they were talking about at the time. It was a place called the University Club in San Francisco. And at the time, one of the topics that came up was a discussion of automobiles, these new horseless carriages, as they were called at the time, and whether or not they were a fad, were they going to last, what's the viability of even doing anything with a horseless carriage, you know, how useful are they really? For anyone who isn't aware, of course, a horseless carriage is what they used to call cars way back when. So, of course, you and I now are aware that cars are a huge deal. They're everywhere in the U.S. and across the world. They're used for transport all over. But back in 1903, automobiles were still fairly new, and they were still not widely spread. And, I mean, there weren't even a lot of paved roads in the U.S. yet. Back during this time frame, there was less than 150 miles of paved road. So a lot of the roads were still the you know, old dirt roads with the potholes and, you know, horse wagon tracks and things like that on the sides of it. So they were not well-developed, well-maintained roads. Those weren't a thing yet because there just weren't that many places that had a lot of cars yet. But Horatio was of the opinion that automobiles, these horseless carriages, were going to become a big deal and that they were fairly reliable and you could travel with them and all of this sort of thing as opposed to using horses. He was in the minority in this decision. He definitely was not part of the group that was larger in this discussion. So, of course, a debate ensues. People are going back and forth. And ultimately, one of the other men there at the club bet Horatio $50, which was a decent chunk of money back in 1903, but he bet Horatio $50 that he couldn't make it cross-country in 90 days in a horseless carriage. And Horatio was very sure of himself that he could, so he took him up on the bet. Now, I will say, ultimately, he ended up spending way more money on this trip than the $50 that he won from the bet. But... His wife happened to have come from money, so he had a decent amount of money to play with. He also was a retired doctor. So even back then, doctors generally made a decent amount. So he was set up enough that he could afford to do this. But he got himself a mechanic to travel with him, a man named Sewell Crocker, who was a bicycle racer. He had raced bicycles, and he was about 22 And he also was a gasoline engine mechanic, so he knew how to work on the engine of the car. They discussed it, and they ended up getting a used Winton touring car, which Jackson called Vermont. Vermont was only a 20-horsepower vehicle, which at the time was pretty decent. Of course, nowadays, that's nothing compared to the cars we have. But keep in mind, this is 1903. They set off from San Francisco on May 23rd, 1903 to start their cross-country journey. As I mentioned, there were a lot of roads that were not paved yet. The majority of the roads they took were not paved. So they were dealing with large potholes, wagon wheel tracks, you know, mud, streams. There were several points where they had to go across streams and rivers and things like that in the car. So luckily it made it through them all. 
And of course, there were several points where they broke down. They even broke down just 15 miles outside of San Francisco right after they had left. But that's why he had Sewell Crocker with him who knew what he was doing in terms of fixing the engine. So luckily, he had someone with him who knew how to make the repairs. And Horatio Jackson had the money to pay for parts and pay for the repairs. So that made a lot of it a lot easier. Nonetheless, he was able to prove his point eventually and get across the country. There's actually one point where they also had to be towed by horse, ironically. One of the times they got stuck, they couldn't get themselves out, and eventually a nearby farmer used his horse and was able to sort of pull the car out of the ditch or whatever it had gotten stuck in. But, you know, back then that's just what was necessary. It was sort of, you know, really, really old-school AAA road repair, road service situation. And... At one point, also, Sewell Crocker had to go 26 miles to get gas because they had a leak in their gas tank. So Horatio's whole thing had, with this bet had been that cars could make the trip across the country. And he ended up proving that. However, at the time, cars were still new enough and roads were still beat up enough that it wasn't really 100% reliable someone without the kind of money that Horatio Jackson had could not have done this trip because uh, based off rough estimations, he probably spent around $2,000 by the time he got to New York City. And he only won 50 from the bet. So, you know, cost-benefit analysis, not great in terms of the money, but he and Sewell Crocker did become quite famous for doing this journey because they were the first ones to do it and because they actually did it. So there were some cities where as they were pulling in, they had little mini parades of people following along with the car. Another thing that happened, which of course, being an animal lover, I think is really cute, is that at one point when they were in Idaho, uh, Horatio Nelson Jackson, I don't know why I said his whole name, Horatio, ended up buying a bull terrier, which they named Bud. And from then on, from Idaho all the way to New York, Bud rode along in the car with them. They even gave him his own goggles to keep the dust out of his eyes. And there's pictures from their road trip showing Bud riding in the car with them, looking all happy with his goggles on. It's really cute. If you like that sort of thing, I definitely recommend you check it out. And from there, they kept traveling. Ultimately, they got to New York City on July 26th, 1903. They had traveled roughly 4,500 miles. Now, anyone with a really good grasp on U.S. geography is aware that if you go just straight across the country, it's closer to 3,000 miles than 4,500. But back then, again, there were not good roads. They had no interstates the way we do now. So everything was using all these little back roads from one town to another. There was also one point during their trip where someone gave them wrong directions and they ended up going roughly 76 miles out of their way. So a lot happened and ultimately it took them closer to 4,500 miles to make the journey. It was also 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes give or take a little bit, but based off of what they clocked themselves at leaving and arriving, that was how long it took them to make the journey. Like I said, there was a lot of fanfare. This was the first cross-country road trip that anyone had done in these new horseless carriages, so it was a big deal. 
And of course, from there, as you and I know now today, cars continued to become a bigger transportation device, an easier way for people to get around. Now, most road trips back then, even if they were several hours long, wouldn't have been cross-country for obvious reasons. I mentioned the lack of roads and, of course, the newness of horseless carriages or automobiles, but also partly because they were so new, there just weren't that many of them yet, and the ones that did exist were expensive enough that the average person who was an everyday factory worker or something like that definitely couldn't afford one. So at this point, road trips were a novelty, but they hadn't really become sort of an everyday occurrence for the average American family. However, over time, as automobiles continued to become more and more common, and of course, we know Henry Ford created the assembly line situation, which made it easier to produce more of the cars, which made them less expensive, things like that continued to happen. Cars continued to become a bigger and bigger portion of the U.S. lifestyle and just everyday life. Roads improved as cars became more popular. People started to improve the technology of vehicles, which then, of course, allowed for longer trips before having to refill the gas tank, as well as improvements in gasoline technology to make it last longer and work more efficiently. Just, you know, technology, technology, technology. It continued to advance and cars became more and more commonplace until, you know, we're at the point where we are now with almost every family I'm sure there's some exceptions out there, but the majority of U.S. families own a car. It's not always new. It's not always the highest end. It's not always fancy with all of the bells and whistles and extras, but most people in the U.S. own a car. And we went from 1903 when people didn't even think cars were going to be around for that long. It's stupid horseless carriages. They're not going to last. And now we're here in 2018 and I can't think of anyone I know who doesn't own a car or at least doesn't in some way use an automobile. It might be someone who uses the bus instead because of where they live, but overall automobiles and vehicles with engines have become our primary mode of transportation, which is definitely very different from back in 1903. As vehicles specifically, you know, family automobiles became more and more commonplace, it started to become easier for the average person to go on a vacation somewhere. Previously, you had to be able to afford a train ticket or you had to be able to afford a boat ticket to go somewhere. And now with automobiles, you know, they were used every day for getting to and from work or to and from, you know, your house or anything like that. But now that you've got this vehicle that allows you to go far distances, you can suddenly take a family vacation over the summer. You can go see grandma who lives two hours away over the summer and visit with them for a while. Things like that that hadn't previously been available started to become more available as vehicles improved and started to become more commonplace until we've ended up where we are now with cars everywhere, people drive everywhere. And it also led into the development and of course the historical nature of Route 66, which I'll be talking about when I come back from my break. Okay, everyone. So this week I want to talk about two things. One is 
Thank you to everyone who showed up to the Rose City Comic Con. Thank you to those who came and said hi to us. We had a little mini Nerdsmith meetup. The Rose City Comic Con was great. We really loved it. It was a great setup. The people there were good. They had wonderful things like a quiet room for someone if they needed a break from all of the chaos of that many people. They had a mother's room so that the mothers actually had somewhere they could go to breastfeed if they needed to. Or, you know, just to chill with the kids for a minute if one of them's asleep, something like that. And those are things that I think are really important to have. You know, our panel, we talked about inclusivity and diversity in gaming. But that also extends then to things like nerding, or excuse me, inclusivity and diversity in just the gaming community in general. So I was really happy to see those sort of things available for the people that needed them. I also want to talk about... World Anvil. I've talked about them so much, but it's just so amazing. We were talking about how helpful it's been to keep everything organized for our world in Countless Heroes, especially as we're moving forward. You know, we just took a break because of the con season. We weren't here most of this past week, and we weren't here the end of the week before, simply because we had conventions going on and couldn't have everything ready to go for the show. But regardless of that, we could put information into World Anvil and keep things updated, create new storylines in terms of creating the information about the different NPCs and whatnot we have in the world. It's just a fabulous website. WorldAnvil.com. I definitely recommend you check it out, especially if you do any sort of world building, any authors out there, any game masters out there. It's really, really useful and it's a fantastic site to check out. And with that, let's get back into this week's topic. Okay, so like I mentioned before the break, Route 66, I think most people nowadays have at least heard of, even if they don't know exactly what it was. Route 66 consisted of a long stretch of roads, which all connected and ran the distance between Chicago, Illinois, and Santa Monica here in California. So it was give or take around 2,448 miles and it was originally sort of christened as Route 66 in November of 1926 as when it sort of officially became a known route that people could take. And then over time, of course, things have changed and it's not as popular as it once was. There are still some people who take Route 66, but it's for the historic fact not because it's actually the easiest way to get to where they're going. The reason it changed so drastically is that in 1956, President Eisenhower signed the Interstate Highway Act. So earlier in the episode, I mentioned that we took I-5 up towards Portland for the Rose City Comic Con. I-5 is Interstate 5, and it runs north to south, through California and Portland, or excuse me, and um, Oregon, and I believe also up into Washington. And then, of course, there's other interstates that go the other way, east to west, across the country. It just depends on where you're at, which ones run through your area. But because of all of these interstates, which were big freeways and highways being designed, the travel was much faster than some of the small roads that are part of Route 66. And so over time, Route 66 became less and less used because it wasn't as efficient. 
So a lot of the little mom and pop stands that had popped up all over Route 66, you know, you see the old movies where people are driving down Route 66 and there's the random attractions all over the place or, you know, a few years ago the movie Cars came out and Lightning McQueen, you know, gets off the freeway and ends up in one of these little podunk towns that used to be a big deal and was a major stop, but then when the freeway became a thing, people stopped taking Route 66, and so suddenly they're not getting the same amount of traffic they used to. And that actually happened. There are small towns still along Route 66, still uh, in the area. There's little attractions and things like that that are on those roadways that no longer see the same amount of foot traffic they used to and so a lot of them have closed down or they are possibly still there but they're in disrepair because there's just no money to fix them. Little towns may be completely gone simply because there's not getting the traffic they used to so there's not enough money for people to stay and make a living. But at one time it was thriving and it was because like I mentioned you know now every family practically had a car so you could go on a summer vacation you could go to a destination and go do something you could take a road trip somewhere and see different things and that's just not something that's done as much anymore I don't think a lot more people nowadays will drive shorter distances but if they're going to be going really far for instance, when we did our road trip this weekend up from the San Francisco, excuse me, Sacramento area all the way up to Portland, you know, that first day it was like a 17-hour drive because of the detours, but normally it's roughly 8 or so, 8 to 10 maybe, depending on what your traffic looks like, and a lot of people will choose to fly if it's going to be that long a distance because as technology has continued to advance, just like it did, you know, back when Horatio made his first trip, things got better. And now also technology has advanced and we have faster trains, we have planes that are much more common. You know, in 1903, they weren't even a thing. And now we have planes that can take me from here in California all the way to the East Coast in 10 to 12 hours, sometimes less depending on your flight and where you're going to, as opposed to having to drive for 63 days like Horatio Jackson did back in 1903. So there have been lots of major technological changes that have made it so that the long road trip isn't as big of a thing anymore. People still do it, depending on how long the distance is and sometimes money is a factor. It's often, though not always, depending on where you're going, cheaper to drive than it is to take a flight. But it just depends on the person and on the family. So Route 66 officially was removed from the U.S. highway system, so it's no longer considered an active highway, and that happened in 1985. The reason being, like I said, it was replaced by all of the interstates. So instead of being one long route, there's now multiple interstates that make up the entirety of what people used to travel going along Route 66. It's just faster, there's fewer stops, it's a better road, especially now because Route 66 isn't maintained as well as it used to be. And so people started using that instead. Another thing I want to talk about in terms of the history of road trips is that road trips were not, and sadly, they're still not safe for everyone to take in every area. I would strongly recommend if you're going to go on a road trip, especially 
depending on your demographic. So whether you're white or person of color or male or female or, you know, depending on where you're going and where you're traveling through, possibly even your sexual orientation, it's really important to look at where you're traveling through and make sure you know. Um, A good example of this is, you know, back in 1936, a postal worker named Victor H. Green, he actually created a book, and this was in 1936, so I'm going to use a word I don't care for, but it's what the name of the book was at the time. So please keep in mind, I do not condone the use of this word. But the name of the book he wrote was called The Negro Motorist's Green Book. And the reason he compiled all of this information is that he realized there were a lot of African Americans who were wanting to travel and they didn't always know what areas were safe, especially back in 1936. You know, that was before the civil rights movement. And unfortunately, even now things are not always 100% depending on where you're going and what you're doing. But back then in particular, it was really bad. They had to worry about where they were going because there were a lot of people who were not going to be happy about African American people driving through their area. And so Victor Green, he was a postal worker and he got in touch with other postal workers and found out from them as well as from African-American travelers what areas were safe and, you know, very receptive to having African-American people traveling through and what areas weren't. So he actually compiled this book together with information so that African-American people in 1936 could know where they could safely travel through in their cars and not have to worry about being harassed or attacked. And unfortunately, you know, I've already said it, but nowadays that's still a concern for some people and in some areas. And there's also other demographics that have to worry about it. Um, Myself being a woman, I know... I have some martial arts experience. I have some martial arts training. I'm fairly confident in my ability to damage someone if they were trying to attack me. But nonetheless, I personally wouldn't want to take a road trip by myself through areas that would be very, very sparsely populated because I would be concerned about what might happen if the wrong group of people found me. Because unfortunately, there are people out there who will target women traveling alone. And similarly, I am half Japanese. Now, I happen to appear more Caucasian than Asian. So I probably wouldn't have to worry about people going after persons of color because of my appearance. But that's another factor as well. One that I know there are people out there that have to deal with that. And of course, there's also the LGBTQ demographic. If you fall anywhere on that spectrum, there are groups out there and places out there where you would be less welcomed if you were traveling. And it's unfortunate that that's the case, but because it is, I do strongly recommend if you're going to go traveling somewhere on a long road trip, which can be a lot of fun if you're going with your friends, but please, please Make sure you consider where you're going, consider the route you're taking. If you're going into an area where you're worried about something being a problem, try to stick to the more populated areas. Try not to take a lot of little back roads and things where you might end up in more conservative and less liberal, open-minded areas because you just never know what's going to happen. 
And of course, this goes for everyone. No matter where you're going, if you're going to take a long road trip, you should know your route. You should know how you're getting there. I mean, nowadays we have GPS, so obviously it's a little easier in some ways to find your way around as long as you have good signal. But having maps handy of where you're going just in case. And please, 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 if you are one of those people who has grown up with just, you know, new technology and you're not familiar with how to use maps very well, learn how to use a map. I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend that. It's something that my parents made sure I knew how to do because they wanted to make sure that even if technology wasn't working, I would be able to read something to get myself home. So having maps of the state you're going to, the state you're traveling through. If you have AAA like I do, you can go to their stores or I, I think you can actually access them online now too, but you can get maps for the different areas you're going to be going through and you can get tour books of things to look for so that you can sort of already have a hotel and things like that planned out if you're going to be doing long road trips. And those things are very helpful to keep yourself safe and also to enjoy it because then you know what's going to be along the road as you're traveling. You can sort of plan ahead like, ooh, this restaurant has really good reviews and that food looks amazing. I really want to check it out. You know, you can plan things out and have that ready to go when you get on the road and it'll make it safer. It'll make you less likely to run out of gas. It'll make it so that you're more likely to get places where you're planning to go on time because you've got everything ready to go. So definitely I recommend, you know, looking into those things before you do a long road trip. Now, if you're just going from, like, for example, here in California, we're a very, very long state, which I think most people know from just looking at a map. And I'm up towards the northern central area of California. So if I'm going all the way down to San Diego or LA area, it's going to take me between six and eight to nine hours, depending on traffic and things like that. So that's a long road trip for a lot of people. It's a full day road trip. But I'm going to be going through primarily, you know, populated areas if I'm taking I-5 or if I'm taking you know, 101, either of those freeways are very, very well populated. There's lots of towns and things like that. So traveling through them is pretty easy. But if I was heading out into the middle of the Midwest, for example, I would want to make sure that I knew where the towns were, what route I was taking, all of that information, because you're going to be going through a lot of different states, you're going to be going through a lot of different areas. And there's parts of states like that, where I would be traveling through essentially the middle of nowhere you know lots of farm fields or lots of just open field and land that's not owned by anyone or that's owned but not developed so knowing where you're going and having a plan and making sure that you have sort of looked in the area and have all that information is going to be a big help if you're planning that kind of a road trip so with that being said some of the resources I used for this episode one of them is called Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip. It's written by Richard Rattay. It's a little bit humor, a little bit anecdotal, and a little bit historical. So he's kind of got a mix of different things. Also checking out uh, www.historic66.com. It's a website that has a bunch of different resources specifically about Route 66. Also, there is a video by PBS 
I happen to have Amazon Prime, so I watched it on Prime for free. It's roughly an hour and a half. But it's Ken Burns, uh, Ken Burns' American Lives by PBS. It's a show they put on. And one of the episodes is Horatio's Drive, America's First Road Trip. Like I said, roughly an hour and a half. One cool thing for anyone who likes Tom Hanks is that he actually is the voice of Horatio whenever he's reading something that Horatio wrote down in his journal. And then they have a good narrator and just overall they had a lot of good information there on America's First Road Trip. So those are three things I would definitely recommend checking out if you want to learn more about any of the stuff I've talked about today. In terms of little bits and pieces of things I mentioned, for instance, again, I'm sorry, I do not like saying this word, but the Negro Motorists Green Book, um, things like that. I did use the internet to look up things about early travel. Uh, that particular book you can find more about online. And I, they have, you know, little excerpts you can find from the original and things like that. And with that, I'm going to close out this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed this topic and I will be back next week. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself. What is Champions of the Earth? Why Champions of the Earth is a live play radio drama hybrid about Power Ranger, Voltron, crazy action. Does it have teen romance? It has teen romance. Hey guys. And, um, hey, hang on a sec. And what else does it have? Is there cool abilities? There's cool abilities. There's an original game system that we're playing together uh, uh, and beta hey, testing. Hey guys, I mean, this is kind of important. Can you? Okay, call in just a second. We're trying to tell people about Champions of the Earth. Okay. It sounds um, really cool. There's uh, So it's a cool mix of high school drama, superpowers, and there's mech combat. Yeah, but right now, there are monsters coming over the horizon. What are we gonna do, guys? We Whoa! Get out of here! Ah! Marcy, save us! Hang on, I got this. Champions of the Earth! Find us wherever podcasts are downloaded. Check us out at championscast.com and go have yourselves an adventure.